is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 80 is Jungian analyst and author John Destian in St. Paul, Minnesota. He earned a Doctor of Jurisprudence from William Mitchell College of Law in 1975 and later trained as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, earning a Diploma in Analytical Psychology in 1983. Dr. Destian is past co-president of the Association of Graduates in Analytical Psychology, known as AGAP, an international professional group of Jungian analysts founded in 1954 by the first graduates of the original C.G. Jung Institute. He is the founder and past chairman and executive director of Jungian International Training Zurich, created in 2008 by members of AGAP in the United States, Canada, and Switzerland, who wanted a vehicle through which they and others could provide financial support to the full-time English-language Jungian analytic training in Zurich. It has been an historical tradition in Zurich since 1948 and is maintained today by the International School of Analytical Psychology, known as ISAP Zurich, which is the training institute founded by AGAP in 2004, and where Dr. Destian currently serves as a training and supervising analyst. He also maintains a private practice, along with his wife, fellow Jungian analyst Judith Savage, at their offices Psychoanalytic Consultants in St. Paul, Minnesota. His essay, The Dawn of Religious Consciousness, Abraham, Isaac, and the Akeda, was published in Trust and Betrayal, Dawnings of Consciousness, papers delivered at the 2010 Jungian Odyssey. And his coveted book, Coming Together, Coming Apart, The Union of Opposites in Love Relationships, originally published in 1989 and currently out of print, will be re-released by Chiron Publications on March 15th, and it is the subject of our talk today. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com, where you'll find links on everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, February 17th, 2021, through the magic of Zoom. Hi, Dr. Destian. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me. So this book, uh, it's been out of print, but it's gained in popularity uh, within the past several months or so, and it is being republished by Chiron, and their expected date for publication is March 15th of this year, 2021. So you you wrote this book actually back in the, ni- in the 1980s, and you told me that now, obviously, your thinking has mo- moved on since then. It's deepened with your 35 plus years of analytic experience and a similar deepening in consciousness. So would you tell us, first of all, a little bit about why you wrote the book in the first place? I wrote the book, um, uh, first is my uh, my diploma thesis at the Jung Institute in uh, 1983, uh, I'd been working with couples uh, from the mid-70s until, uh, until I went to Zurich. Um, and uh, when I started reading the, the um, uh, 
literature in analytical psychology, there were really only two um, two places where you could read about marriage. One was uh, Adolf Guggenbuehl Craig's uh, Marriage Dead or Alive, and the other was Jung's article on relationships. Uh, I thought Jung's article on relationships was rather sketchy, and um, and uh, Guggenbuehl's book, as, as good as it was, it didn't take up the dynamics of relationship. I had spent a good amount of time considering the dynamics of relationships, the intrapsychic dynamics of relationships, not, not how they manifest in the outer world. And so when I, when I wrote my thesis, um, uh, that became the subject of it. And I was fortunate enough to have a number of analyses at the time and a couple of uh, of uh, couples that I was seeing in this work that um, uh, uh, helped to uh, coagulate my thinking on the, on the subject. And then when I got back from uh, Zurich, back to the United States, I uh, saw a number of people in uh, analysis and also couples in, in counseling. And then I was also running some groups with uh, a co-therapist and um, that provided more information, uh, more data for my, for my book. Now, Jungian analysis is typically done one-on-one, but you also do group work as well. What is the difference? Well, I, I, I haven't done group work for, for a number of years, um, except, uh, except training groups. But uh, uh, the dynamics, the dynamics in, a, in a group um, are considerably different because uh, there's both interpersonal and uh, interpsychic work going on in the in the group group all at the same time, and um, uh, what some people might think of is is uh, the contamination of one person's psyche with another person's psyche in a group actually is the the um, um, the reality of how encounters shape us. Encountering really is the, the structure by which we come into being, um, uh, whether it's in alchemy, uh, whether we find it in alchemy or we find it in uh, 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 relationships, find it in work, everything, everything in our psychic life emerges out of encounter. So a group is a, is a, um, uh, an experience in which those encounters, one could see how, how one is shaped by the influences of other, how one influences another with one's own way of being, and, and how the intrapsychic uh, dynamics merge with the uh, interpersonal dynamics. In this book, you challenge the myriad of present day, or what were at the time, how-to or self-help psychology books, because that's all we had. I mean, I'm at the age where I remember before the internet, I would go to bookstores, I would hang out at Barnes and Noble or Borders or even the library. Uh, and I would go straight to the self-help section. I wouldn't go to the psychology section. I would go to self-help. And I'd look through those books. And this is before, obviously, I found Jung. So I would like for you to tell us what you say your dissatisfaction was with the popular relationship books about their literal and concrete interpretations. Well, that's, uh, that's actually quite simple. 
Um, the book that I that's being reprinted uh, is about the um, uh, the uh, encounter of uh, self with collective. That is, um, we all identify uh, as we come out of childhood and into adulthood, and maybe well into adulthood with a collective consciousness. You know, those are the cultural mores, the cultural beliefs, the cultural opinions, cultural feelings um, that we're taught we're supposed to uh, uh, think, feel, opine about, have perspectives about. Um, uh, those, those collective ideals um, most often only represent parts of us. Um, and one of the one of the conceptions of collective consciousness is of uh, normalcy and health. Um, uh, so normalcy or normality, if you think about it, comes from the word norm, which is a statistical um, uh, item. Uh, it's a calculation which has nothing to do with any given individual. It means all the given individuals inside the norm have some some difference and that difference is what we call a self and uh, uh, so when a when a, a book a self-help book talks about healthy or normal they're not talking about any given individual and the given individual who reads it then recedes into the background in relation to how they are they get the impression that there's something wrong with them Relationships have a an ontological being. That is, they 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 are what they are. They um, uh, they are the the way an individual is an individual, including all the ways they have conflicts, uh, including all of the ways that they're unconscious, and um, and so proscription or prescriptions, excuse me, like communication falls short because you can't communicate what you don't know. And since the unconscious is, is a, a, the unconscious psyche is a, uh, a significant uh, contributor to everyday life, if you're unconscious of something, you can't communicate it. And then the way it manifests then is in behavior. That which is unconscious manifests as behavior. And so the behavior then has to be understood to, in order to make conscious what is unconscious. If the goal is communication, if the goal is um, um, uh, appearing to uh, conform to a, 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 a preordained notion of what is healthy or what is normal, then the individual doesn't exist in the relationship. So these typical pop psychology, how-to or self-help books, they pathologize the unconscious psyche, right? Well, yeah, they, pop, they pathologize relationship. Mm. Uh, not just the unconscious psyche. Yes, certainly the unconscious psyche. Things like jealousy, competition, um, which, are, which are typical things that occur in a relationship mm -hmm. uh, are pathologized. Uh, as well. Those are, those are intrinsic to relationships. And so as a Jungian analyst, 
how do you view those, those things that you mentioned? How do you view them differently? That they are inherent in, in all relationships. And so how do we manage them? Well, I don't know that we manage them. We encounter them. Uh, (laughs) The, 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 you know, starting, for example, with the jealousy or competition, the jealousy or competition uh, is part of a complex. And a complex is an amalgam of thoughts and feelings and perceptions that organize themselves around a particular idea. And that idea has both a collective conscious quality and a quality that is unconscious. What I mean by a collective conscious idea is, uh, for example, if some if, if if somebody has an image of of uh, of uh, what a- empathy should be, uh, and um, and um, and they encounter a situation in which empathy is called for, and they don't feel it. Um, and, but and they experience the empathy as em- emerging from somebody else, then they try to copy it. There's a competitive aspect to it. And that competitive aspect speaks to whatever is unconscious in, in that complex that makes the empathy, that, that in which the empathy is, um, is inhibited or blocked from coming or doesn't exist for some other reason. So that the imitation of empathy, which is competing with the ideal of empathy, precludes the, the understanding of what is, what is truly there. So the goal of the uh, analy- uh, analytic work at that moment is to find out whether, there, whether the empathy takes a different form that it, than it uh, is preconceived or is absent. And if it's absent, uh, what is there in its place. Now that often involves um, uh, something something that's in the shadows emerging. Uh, that is some kind of resentment or uh, a history of, of feeling hurtness in an analogous situation or something like that. I'm gonna back up a little bit. You said that when choosing a title for this book, The title that stayed with you was People Who Love People and the People Who Love Them. (laughs) So how did we get from that to coming together, coming apart, the union of opposites in love relationships? Um, A failure of my imagination. No. (laughs) It's the best. the, uh, the original publisher liked coming together, coming apart, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and the rest of it. And um, it, it, it seemed to say something about what the, what the book was about. Actually, the, the Chiron and I are now discussing changing the, the, the subtitle of the book from The Union of Opposites to The Play of Opposites, mm. which I think better describes okay. uh, what the book is about, the, the way in which um, the... Uh, um, Oppositions play with one another, and in the in their play, uh, offer the possibility for for uh, uh, transformation. Play actually, in that context, a- acts as a uh, as a catalyst for uh, for change. 
because change always requires a catalyst. So before we get into the chapters, I would also like to mention um, that you will be, will you be updating the terminology for the LGBTQ community? Would you like to say something about that? Yeah, I do want to say something about that. Over the last 35 years, I've, I've worked a lot with, um, with LGBTQ uh, individuals. And uh, the terminology that's in the book right now is terminology from the, from the 80s, uh, in which anima and animus and contrasexual are the primary vocabulary for discussing animation. Mm and for discussing uh, the, the kind of splitting that takes place psychologically as part of the, uh, of the uh, transformative process. Um, obviously, anima and animus and contrasexual um, uh, do, not <clears throat> do not fit uh, LGBTQ uh, uh, structures and probably, I, I mentioned in the book that anima and animus um, uh, have both um, uh, qualitative and quantitative um, qualities. The qualitative quantity uh, has to do with the, the, the content of the anima image or the animus images. And the quantitative is the energic, or the energetic, the dynamic, uh, uh, mediatory um, qualities that uh, uh, function uh, between conscious and unconscious psyche, and the both the, the the both the qualitative and quantitative qualities that are in uh, uh, the anima and the animus in in, in typically heterosexual people are present in LBGTQ but they don't have the same form. They don't have the same images. Okay. But obviously, LGBTQ people animate, they split, they transform, they move along in their individuation. And so, uh, the, though the language of anima and animus contrasexual is inaccurate in that respect, the dynamics, the qualitative and quantitative aspects of the of the uh, descriptions in the book, I think still hold. I'm going to start here with chapter one, and I pulled out some main points from each chapter. You say it is, I believe, the non-judgmental nature of my observations of the phenomenon of infatuation or falling in love that differentiates this book from others. The non-judgmental nature. So is that going back to what we were talking about before about the the, the how to or self help psychology books that are out there? Uh, yeah, it is. I I like to think of myself, which always means that if I say I like to think of myself as there's probably a shadow. To <laughs> I like to think of myself as a phenomenologist. Mm -hmm. That is that I describe phenomena, um, which is again why. The, the, the language anima and animus are problematical now uh, because that terminology um, already defines something that is indefinable. But as a phenomenologist, the, the goal is to describe what is 
in contrast to um, prescribing how it ought to be. And, you know, to the extent that I'm capable of being object, objective, obviously I'm, I, I have my own subjective b beliefs that may, may intrude themselves. But to the, uh, to the extent that I'm capable of being objective, uh, I'm trying to describe phenomena as I observe them. Uh, and uh, and to, to get away from an uh, a, a, a priori judgment of what it is that I'm observing. In chapter one, you talk about falling in love, and you say that this book is about the meaning of falling in love. We need to fall in love in order to become who and what we have the potential to be. So it's necessary, a necessary part, would you say, of our individuation to have to fall that, in love? to fall in love. Yeah. That's a difficult question. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've ever met anybody that hasn't fallen in love. So what about the, what about, I'm just thinking about clergymen maybe that are celibate and, and, but, well, but you know, that, that's problematical as it is. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. but um, I, I think that uh, clergy, clergy may just as well fall in love with an idea. Mm -hmm. There's a point in the book later on uh, where I talk about um, where, where in, in the split of the, of the anima or animus, um, a, a, a partner feels threatened because the other, because their partner is infatuated not with a person, but with an idea or a thing, like their work. Mm -hmm. um, falling, in, falling in love does not necessarily, in fact, in fact, infatuation doesn't necessarily have to be with another person. It can be with an idea. I was going to ask you about infatuation because you, you mention it a lot in the book. And I was going to mm -hmm. ask you about what is the difference? Well, first of all, what is infatuation and how does it differ from falling in love? Well, I think I use the, the two um, um, uh, interchangeably because um, uh, uh, I, I actually prefer falling in love because it's because it's active. It's a it's a it's mm -hmm. a verb. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it has a, a verb quality, an active quality. Infatuation is a state. Um, it's a it's a, it's a state of being, and it and it really doesn't uh, describe the um, the uh, the dynamic aspect of falling in love. But inf infatuation, of course, uh, comes from the word the Latin word fatus, which means fool. And um, when we fall in love. When we become infatuated with a with a, a, a person or an idea, uh, we do tend to become myopic, uh, and um, and to, to see only what we see, and to in some cases behave foolishly. Um, so, but I use them interchangeably. I prefer falling in love. Okay, and and you say that falling in love is 
is natural for people, whether we're 15 or 50 or 70 or 90, that we need to fall in love in order to become who and what we are. And so by falling in love, you don't necessarily mean a sexual relationship. And that you say that sexuality differs from love, although both are instinctual. So the the natural activity of falling in love can be with, it doesn't necessarily have to be with another person. It can be with a thing, an object, an activity. Yeah. Uh, forgive the uh, uh, intrusion of politics into this, but if you think of the, the, the people who um, uh, stormed the Capitol, uh, you know, a month ago, mm-hmm. uh, they were infatuated. They were infatuated with an idea. The idea was stop the steal. The infatuation was with Trump. They behaved foolishly, out of control. It was it was falling in love. It was an infatuation. So you can fall in love with an idea. We know we know people. You know we know through history people have fallen in love with ideas, and become besotted by them. You also look at the question of why do I always fall in love with a particular kind of, you say person, but maybe also idea. Mm-hmm. Why do I always fall in love with a particular kind of thing, over and over again, even when I don't want to? Yeah, that's that's the that's the content, that's the qualitative aspect of the animating factor that I've been called, that, that in the book I call anima or animus. The qualitative a- aspect has to do with the content of the of of that animating factor, and that's individual. Uh, there isn't any way to know in advance um, uh, what that quali- what those qualitative factors are. They only they only manifest themselves when they get projected, and when they get projected, that's how we then we, we come to know them. Uh, but the rest of the book is about working through that. Mm-hmm. That is coming to consciousness of that. If one doesn't come to consciousness of that, consciousness of that, that is, if one uh, uh, projects that animating factor onto another involves themselves in a relationship with that person and then the relationship ends and there's no reflective uh, coming to understanding of what uh, what has happened and what 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 their part was in it what they saw in it then it happens again right I have a friend who a single male friend who keeps falling in love with these women who it's just it's not requited and he always says to me, you know, you can't help who you love. And I think, well, hmm. I mean, he doesn't want to look underneath what's going on here. And he's very unhappy. And it causes him a lot of a lot of pain. Uh, You can't help who you love. Well, hmm. I'd be curious about that. Yeah, I don't think I, I, I think I think you I think you can't help who you fall in love with if um, if if you don't know anything about how you fall in love and what the qualitative aspects are of the animating 
factor in your own psychic psychic life is. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. The 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 uh, I think about um, uh, people I've worked with or people who I've known um, who who get uh, get into a relationship with somebody uh, who they don't feel that passionate. Uh, 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 feeling towards, but they feel love for that person. They get in; they, they're in that relationship, and then sometime after they've been involved in that relationship for some period of time, then the projections come, uh, and it's not. And, and so then the falling in love actually takes place after the relationship is already in being. Uh, and uh, uh, they, they tend to have a better understanding of the reflective necessity of, um, of, of the relationship. And so the rest of the book then is relevant to them as they come to understand what it is that they're seeing. See, we've got, we've got three philosophical things we have to pay attention to. The ontology, that is what, what something is, uh, how uh, how we know it, the epistemological aspect of it. How do we know that it is what it is? And then the third is the hermeneutics. What does it mean? And so the 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 the, the book is really about first describing what is, secondly understanding what it is, and then finding the meaning of it. And that can happen, and that and that happens whether one falls in love. And then gets into a relationship, or gets in love, he gets in a relationship, and then falls in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the uh, you know, but projections projections have their their life, and 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 in the life of the projection, uh, uh, they come to give us information, which we can find meaning in about ourselves and about the world we're in, and the mm-hmm. person we're involved with. And by projection, I was talking with somebody about this and she said, well, I'm projecting, that's bad, that's wrong. And I thought, no, that's natural. We, that's how it works, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember Ian, Ian, uh, Ian Baker, who's an analyst in, in Zurich, talking about, about relationships and saying, you want to withdraw about 90% of it. <laughs> the other ten percent is what keeps us involved, mm-hmm. and of course, it's true that the you know relationships. There's there's a constant um, uh, uh, circulation of projections, mm-hmm. uh, which is what keeps relationships alive. It also keeps them uh, from being idealized. And the longer we're in a relationship, and the more we come to realize the the ways projections continue to evolve manifest and then evolve, the more we realize that relationships don't don't uh, have a happily ever after, but they have a, a possibility of a meaningful ever after quality. And in chapter two, you talk about the embarrassment and shame that, that happens to us when we fall in love. And I, I hadn't really thought of that, that, that people feel vulnerable and exposed and, um, would you say a little bit about that, 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 that you would like to remove some of the embarrassment and shame from talking about what happens to us when we fall in love? 
yeah, I talk about the agony and the ecstasy. Mm. Um, uh, uh, the, the ecstasy is uh, self-evident mm. once you once once it's evident, and but the the agony, the the insecurities that we feel, uh, which are so typical, um, uh, in the insecurities uh, often manifest during during a a, uh, a separation, whether that separation is for a, a minute or an hour or a day, uh, the, the fantasies of betrayal or um, the fantasies of uh, of a uh, of a rival, and uh, and so that's one that's one kind of shame. Uh, it's one kind of embarrassment. Uh, course you know if, if they're in, involved in a sexual relationship there can be uh, uh, sexual shame fears of inadequacy okay uh, things like that in chapter three you say that you're on the side of the totality of the psyche and you mention that actually throughout the book and then consequently, you are opposed to repression. So would you explain to us what the, the what being on the side of the totality of the psyche means? Yeah, it, it, it means that um, uh, there are, uh, the, the, the psyche, uh, Jung talks about the psyche as, as a unity. And if it's a unity, it means that there's also a disunity, uh, a, a multiplicity. The multiplicity, uh, then, in its totality, is a unity. Um, if you if you think about uh, moments in your life when somebody says something to you and you and you reply with, that makes me think of a thousand different things. Well, those those thousand different things are all present. Then, when you choose one of the thousand choose one or two of the thousand, the others recede in the background. doesn't mean they aren't there. They, it means that they become unconscious again. Mm -hmm. So being on the side of the psyche is, is being able to, to um, um, uh, allow what is, what is unconscious but capable of being present to become present. Now, now, of course, I'm a little bit cavalier when I say I'm on the side of the, to of the total psyche and uh, I'm opposed to repression. Repression is something we, that happens to us. We don't, we can do it. The ego can use its, its uh, energy to repress something. But mm -hmm. repression is also something that happens to us. For example, in the, when I just said that it makes me think of a thousand different things. When we pay attention to the one or two, the others are repressed. They go, they go out of, out of consciousness. Um, uh, but what I, what I mean by that is having an attitude. And of course, it's an attitude that takes, takes a considerable amount of time and a considerable amount of, amount of courage to, to have the, the, the standpoint that one wants to allow uh, to come into consciousness what is capable of and is constellated or evoked to become conscious. Even those things, even those things that uh, uh, we don't like to think about ourselves. For example, a few moments ago when I said, I'd like to think that I'm a phenomenologist, 
Well, <laughs> those moments when I find myself not being a phenomenologist, but rather having some preconceived notion about how some, something is, that's part of how I am too. Mm-hmm. And you bring up typology in this chapter um, because you you look at how the psyche influences when and with whom we fall in and out of love. So mm-hmm. typology is, I think, huge in how and why we get along and what happens when what happens when we don't and we haven't talked about that yet uh, breaking up and separating and why and whether or not I always wonder when I hear about couples who who break up uh, did they did they not do the work. I'm sorry, but that, that's what comes to mind. Did they not do the work on themselves? I don't mean with each other. I don't mean about getting along with each other. I mean on ourselves. So how let's let's talk about typology. How does typology factor into this? Yeah, I have a little bit different take on uh, typology than most Jungians. Okay, sure. Um, my take on typology is that its its importance is primarily in its dis- defensive character. Mm -hmm. That is, we all start, we can't think about something, we can't feel about something, we can't intuit something until we have the thing itself. Uh, And Jung Jung makes the point that everything starts with the sensation, the sensation function. And so then all the other functions um, uh, are activated around the sensation function. Uh, what is, right? And that would be phenomenological. Uh, so the, the, and the, the other three functions then are both hermeneutic and, and, um, and epistemological. How do we know and what does it mean? So um, in, we, we tend to create our preferences and those preferences have a defensive quality. I prefer to be a, a, a I prefer to be introverted than extroverted, but we always have an extroversion when we're introverted. Uh, I prefer to be a feeling type, but I have a thinking function that's unconscious. Um, uh, Intuition, uh, same thing. Um, Those things that are, those functions that are unconscious are unconscious. and when they do, when they do come to con- consciousness, they come to consciousness uh, typically uh, defensively. And so a lot of the conflicts that happen between couples uh, uh, that are typological are typological because something has been activated, has been constellated unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, for example, for a thinking type uh, who whose um, whose feeling judgments tend to be. Uh, unconscious, when a feeling judgment does come up, it tends to come up rather primitively and associated with the instinct for self-preservation. Since, since, um, since its, its repression is associated with the instinct for self-preservation. So it comes up as anger, aggression, hostility. Um, uh, the same thing, the same thing can be true for someone who's, 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 
this starts out typically as sensation and they have an intuition that intuition that they have is dark because it's been impressed and it belongs also to the instinct for self-preservation that's been impressed and so it has also a a it can have a paranoid quality a suspicious quality um and 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 you can you can imagine the, the ways in which those those defensive um shadowy typological influences then manifest in the relationship where there's a fair amount of uh, of anger resentment um, withdrawal because of course another aspect of the instinct for self-preservation is to withdraw mm-hmm. to seek distance and that could lead to breakups mm-hmm. right so i don't know if there's anything else you wanted to say about separating separations breakups. oh yeah oh there's a lot to yeah. say about separation yeah, yeah absolutely um one of the things that I describe in, in the early chapters around falling in love is the way in which um, people, when they fall in love, feel as if they know they've known the person since forever. Right. And they feel a an enormous amount of trust, with a shadow of of um, of um, anxiety. Remember, I, meant, I mentioned that a moment ago. The anxiety, the insecurity. And of course, when somebody's involved in a relationship, what happens then is the, the person that they thought that they were in a relationship with emerges as somebody other than that. Uh, oftentimes, uh, people see that as a betrayal or a subterfuge, that they were hiding who they were rather than their own inability to see mm-hmm. or be open to who the person was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so then there is a, a, a fundamental uh, disappointment. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that uh, when I'm working with a couple, it's not uncommon for me in the set first, second, third session for me to say to them, um, uh, let's say it's a man and a woman, uh, Gloria, this is Bob. Bob, this is Gloria. Have you met one another? Uh, it's it because because the 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 image that they have of the other person um, uh, doesn't conform with the reality of who that person is. So, for example, when somebody says when a when a uh, one of the couples says um, you're never around, and the other person who's never around gets defensive, you know, you have to ask the question, well. Would you like her not to want you around? Of course, of course. So there's something else going on there. That the, the 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 staying away has a defensive quality, and so what what they're defending against is how the other person is and what that constellates in them, what that evokes in them. And rather than coming to grips with what what's it, what's evoked in them, uh, the uh, the separating energy is lodged in the other person. And so then the goal is to separate from the other person. In the, in the early stages of a relationship, uh, when we fall in love, the outer world seems threatening to the relationship. In the, in, uh, in the, in the period of separation, uh, uh, 
that I talk about. The, the outer world seems safe and the relationship feels threatening. In chapter four, you mentioned crushes. And I had asked you earlier what the difference was between falling in love and infatuation. But let's bring crushes in here. Uh, what are crushes? Oh, I think of crushes as, as mini infatuations. Okay. You st- I, I see it, for example, uh, in workplaces where, where uh, uh, at a time when, when, a, when a person is feeling um, uh, uh, bored or um, uh, sort of depressed, maybe anxious, and then somebody that they've, they've worked with uh, for a while, all of a sudden they light up. Uh, and uh, that has a crush quality. The, the lighting up, no, lighting up it, it, as a crush can also emerge into an infatuation from from there to something further. We mm-hmm. see that too. But we tend to project, right? And so a crush is a projection. And so mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about the shadow too, and how shadow qualities figure into relationships and the shadow does have something to do with falling in love because our shadow contents also get projected. And so does that factor into breakups that we're seeing in our partner, the qualities that we embody, but we're projecting onto them the quantity, when I was talking about the anima and animus, or now I'm going to talk about is the animating factor. Okay. The animating factor, as I said, has a qualitative and a quantitative quality. The, uh, uh, fun- the, the qualitative is the content. The quantitative is the energy. Now, the, 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 the quantitative is, is a is an energetic process that connects and that that uh, connects the conscious psyche with the unconscious psyche. Um, The unconscious psyche exists in the shadows. And so the contents of the unconscious psyche is in the shadows, what we call the shadow when we when we talk about it as a noun. Um, And 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 so whenever the the um, uh, animating factor is activated, shadows, uh, shadowy contents are also activated. They show up in the, in the uh, infatuation or when we fall in love in the anxieties and insecurities that we have. Uh, in, in, a, in a relationship, the animating factor is oftentimes, we can say, tinged with or consumed by, on a continuum from tinged to uh, consumed by shadow, uh, by shadow contents. Mm. And, and so it's those shadow contents that are, are, um, uh, are present in in a relationship. Um, I talk about uh, what starts out as an equilibrium and becomes a pseudo equilibrium. The equilibrium is uh, what happens after an infatuation when people return to earth. 
the pseudo equilibrium is what what happens after the equilibrium when people begin to repress things that are in that are emerging in them in order to maintain the appearance of stability and predictability um, so what's stirring in the equilibrium in the pseudo equilibrium is all of these shadowy contents uh, uh, that have that are being repressed or suppressed uh, and then they emerge um, in arguments yeah uh, for example you know a simplistic example is extroversion and introversion a um, a guy a, a man and a woman are, are at a par- uh, at a party and um, and uh, he's off in a corner he's introverted and he's off in a corner uh, all by himself while, while she's having, because she's extroverted, a, a, a good time. And then they get home and he gets into a fight with her about having uh, uh, having made a fool of herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a projection of, of his own uh, shadowy extroversion. She, sa- she says in response, well, think of all the times that you go to a, go to, to uh, your, your professional meetings, and I come with you, and I'm left all by myself, and I have nobody to talk to, and nothing to do. Um, you know, there's a there's a there are projections running back and forth around introversion and extroversion. Uh, the introverted, the introverted man's extroverted sh- uh, shadow qualities are are, um, are projected onto her in a negative way, and she's seen as negative, and vice versa. So the shadow comes into play with arguments and and bickering, right? Mm-hmm. So couples who find themselves constantly bickering, I hear that a lot, that they're constantly bickering, yet they stay together, they want to stay in the relationship, but both of them are miserable. So what's going on there? Yeah, I, I wrote a paper, actually people can find this in a, book called The Soul of uh, Popular Culture. Uh, the, the, the name of the article was um, Another Look at Codependency. Uh, it was, again, written in the, in the 1980s or 90s. I don't remember exactly when. Um, but it was about what we, what we call hostile dependent relationships, or what are now called codependent relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, the the, the the um, the word uh, dependency is is really a misnomer. Uh, Bowlby uh, uh, talked about dependency as really anxious attachment, uh, and and so hostility is uh, one aspect of the an- uh, anxiety in anxious attachment because anxiety is really fear, and fear is the instinct for self preservation. The two qualities of self preservation. Well, three qualities actually are aggression, withdrawal, or freezing. And um, and so when when people are bickering like that, they're describing the anxiety, their, their anxious attachment with the other person. But it's entirely unconscious. The the what is what is frightening is unconscious. Also, the attachment is unconscious. I remember working with a couple for who, who had been married for many years and when he and and, and when uh, when he he got um, um, uh, ill and was going and, and was going to die 
what emerged in his in his partner was very touching and, and their kids had never seen it. Mm. Uh, it, it uh, the the anxious attachment um, had manifested as their bickering and as you know uh, uh, going to their respective corners. But when push came to shove, something you know something of the repressed re uh, emerged. In chapter seven, you talk about couples who separate and after their initial euphoria of relief after the separation, that most people immediately seek a new relationship. And some people even go back to their to their former relationships. In either event, the new relationship is a projection of the positive aspect of the split anima or animus image onto the other person. But the individual is still confronted with the task of uniting the opposite. So if if couples split up and no no reflection was done, no inner work was done, what happens to the next relationship? Is it just a carryover? Uh, it can be. You know, uh, Jung makes the point that individuation happens whether we, uh, the individuation process happens whether we're engaged in it or not. Uh, and, and, and sometimes um, we learn things even when we don't know we've learned them. Mm. Uh, so it isn't it isn't necessarily so that the 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 next relationship if there's a projection into the next relationship of the of the positive contrasexual that I talked about uh, it isn't necessarily so that it 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 becomes repetitive. Sometimes people are are able to learn even if they don't know that they've learned okay uh, something about themselves and it's especially about themselves not about the other person but about themselves. Mm -hmm. Maybe they maybe they 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 recognize without uh, without knowing the significance of uh, their um, uh, uh, insecurity or their tendency to become defensive um, or, or their uh, uh, their judgmentalism. Uh, they they have some kind of uh, vague vague um, uh, sense that. The, the, the separation has changed them uh, or it manifests as a change in the next relationship. Um, it's also true some, sometimes the people get back together again because they realize in the separation uh, something about themselves that uh, they hadn't seen, including mm -hmm. the, the attachment. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, num a number of people uh, get back together again because they had uh, they had forgotten uh, uh, how they felt about the other person, mm. and that's that's uh, you know that's the that's the beginning of a a move towards um, um, uh, a, a, a a fuller understanding of uh, of uh, of themselves. What makes them tick? What what they what they're afraid of? What they want, long for? Uh, what they aspire to, things like that. How does the union of opposites, how does that factor in here? And, and also, I don't want to leave this out. You mentioned the infatuation to reunion circuit. Mm -hmm. 
What is that? Well, uh, let me let me say first of all about reunion. Um, um, re- reunion. <clears throat> Jung, Jung talked about uh, uh, a a factor in the psyche which he called the transcendent function, uh, and the transcendent function is the 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 resolution of conflict between two uh, opposing uh, psychic forces. Uh, it's if you think about how human beings have gotten from uh, living in trees to um, uh, where we are now, uh, consciousness-wise, something has happened psychologically to that 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 uh, that human consciousness con- continues to emerge from unco- from unconsciousness, or that is from nowhere. You know, another word another word for unconscious is nowhere. Uh, out of nowhere, uh, t- transformations in human consciousness uh, take place, and. And Jung called that the um, uh, transcendent function. So out of nowhere come, come inspirations for us or resolving ideas. Um, that's what the reunion uh, is really speaking to, is that we, we come to, something comes out of nowhere that resolves a problem for us. Um, but all that means is then we move on to the next one, the next problem, mm-hmm. um, uh, because because it is by way of problematization. Problematization is really projection in 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 one form. Um, it, it starts the old the the process all over again. Um, uh, so uh, you know you see you see in people who are. Who have um, have uh, weathered some pretty difficult times in their marriage, you find them still um, weathering difficult times in their relationships. But uh, but they have a container that is a psychological container that is a certain kind of knowledge of how they work that helps them to look at what it is that they they are are missing and look for what's missing. In their understanding, both of themselves and the partner, and so, so, so then it it, it has a uh, a circuit a circuit quality. The alchemists call it a circulatio, or uh, and that is they they say let it rise and let it fall seven times, uh, which is just a way of saying that it happens over and over again. The conclusion to the book, the last chapter, chapter eight, is titled The Symbolic Life. And you say, I love this, the symbolic life is not attained by sitting on a mountain or contemplating the nature of the universe, but in everyday encounters, in relationships and interactions with the people and the world around us. What to you is the symbolic life? Uh symbolic life is 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 under several different factors one is um, um, understanding that um, that behavior is a symbol that is it it's 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 the best expression at the moment of something that is not yet known so um, uh, 
so as a symbol, it needs to be understood. The same thing is true of emotion. Emotion doesn't exist for its own sake, though the romantics might say otherwise. For me, um, um, uh, emotions are a, um, uh, an information delivery system. Mm-hmm. They tell us something about ourselves and about the, 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 our inner world and the outer world. And so coming to understand what our emotions are telling us also is important. It means, it means so the symbolic life is understanding that emotions and behavior <clears throat> and even thoughts have a symbolic meaning that we need to be able to step back from at the same time as we're engaged in it. Of course, that's a difficult task to both be engaged in it, that is to know it, uh, that's the epistemological aspect, and to step back from it, to relate to it in such a way, to encounter it in such a way, as we come to some meaning about it. That's what I. That's what I think of as the symbolic life. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if there was anything we haven't covered that you would like to talk about or like to mention as we wrap up here. When I when I think about the reaction that I've gotten to the book over the years. It is that that I seem to have succeeded in describing the phenomenology of relationships. That's that's I guess the gratifying part of the, of, of having written the book mm-hmm. uh, is 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 that I I seem to have succeeded relatively well in describing the phenomenology of relationships. The book is titled Coming Together, Coming Apart, and may or may not be subtitled The Union of Opposites in Love Relationships. It is scheduled to be published by Chiron on March 15th, 2021. There will be a link in the show notes for this episode at speakingofyoung.com. And we thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Destian. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Please visit the website speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now on Amazon Music and it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungi and Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. So with special thanks to Dr. Stephen Buser, Jennifer Fitzgerald, and everyone at Chiron Publications. This is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.